Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and we are going to talk about the moral value of tipping, gratuities. And I have the expert on tipping, Anthony Gill, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington, adjunct professor of sociology at the University of Washington, and a distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. He specializes in political economy and religion and politics with an emphasis on church-state relations, religious liberty, and religious economies. Additionally, he has become internationally renowned for his work on the defense of tipping. So, Anthony, thanks for joining us to uh, talk about the merits or maybe not merits of tipping. We'll see how the conversation goes. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Doug. And as I'm reading your introduction, I'm thinking, oh, well, we'll we'll definitely have you on in the future to talk about things that are clearly of interest to our audience. So this will very likely not be your only appearance here. Well, this uh, this is should be an interest to everybody because at least here in the United States, uh, tipping is is fairly common and it leads to a lot of frustrations for individuals uh, who live here in the United States, but then also when foreigners come who are not familiar with tipping. So it, this is one of those topics that uh, whenever I bring up, somebody always has something to say about it, which is uh, why I got <laughs> into it and what makes it fun. Do you get do you get invited to a lot of parties because you're just easy to talk to about tipping? <laughs> yeah, I get invited to parties, and then when they start talking to me about it, they usually show me the door. So, oh uh, wow! Okay. But when they do that, then I don't I don't leave them with my uh, gift bottle of wine. So if they kick me out, ah, uh, gotcha, gotcha. So I will I'll admit that I have a a relationship with tipping that's like. I, it's like a love-hate relationship. Like there's parts of it that I like and parts that I don't like. When I was younger, just actually in college and just out of college, I was a waiter. And so for me, there was an intrinsic relationship between my performance and whether or not I got a good tip. And I prided myself in memorizing the menu because that was impressive. And I was a generally good guy in terms of like conversation. I mean, I'm an introvert, but you know, I was able to connect with, you know, the people there at the table and and all that. But my experience of a, as a customer is a little different. And so sometimes, and maybe it's part of its budget, but sometimes I'll choose to just do carry out or choose a different restaurant knowing that I won't have to tip at those kinds of restaurants. And so it has an interesting, you know, experience on that. And then, you know, I'll, we'll talk a little bit about like the non-restaurant gratuity situation because, you know, one of the articles that you sent me was mostly on restaurants. So anyway, that's been my sort of experience with tipping. It's like I can see the value in one sense, but it's kind of a frustrating experience, kind of hard to know when you tip and when you don't in places that are not clear in our culture. But you describe it as a win-win-win scenario. So I'll let you sort of start off with explaining why it's a win-win-win. Yeah, I first of all, I want to share your sentiment. Uh, I receive it a lot from people that they, they understand that tipping can reward individuals, but they're also very frustrated with it, which makes this a very you know, hot button topic for a lot of individuals. And, and every time I do this presentation, 
there's people in the audience who either bring it up or send me an email later, uh, a short clip from Reservoir Dogs uh, with Mr. Pink, who goes on a five-minute tirade, very profanity-laced, so we won't talk about it here, uh, but about why tipping is is horrible. And uh, that really reflects a lot of people's sentiments with it. But there's this big puzzle that exists then, is that if if everybody, especially customers, hate this this institution, this cultural institution we call tipping, why does it still exist? Yeah. And from an economic perspective, the, the general idea of an institution persists is that there's probably some net benefit to it, some, some great deal of value. And so you know, for me, it was digging in and trying to find the value for it. And I found three different ways that tipping is actually uh, very beneficial for society. So, you know, my my snarky response is that, you know, there's this nefarious plan by libertarian rich men to keep workers from not unionizing or something. And that's really why, that's my like snarky response to like, well, why does it still exist? Oh, because it's, you know, it keeps the little people down and libertarians want to do that. So you could take that for humorous or not, but that's sort of my like, you know, snarky remar- remark on those things. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and that that is one of the reasons why there has been recently, about the last 10 to 15 years, an anti-tipping movement that many people see this as exploitation of service workers, specifically in the restaurant world. And so a number of restaurants have uh, tried to show a good faith and move away from this and pay a quote-unquote living wage uh, that doesn't require tipping by their customers. Uh, there's been some political cage rattling in places like Washington, D.C. to create a, a new minimum wage scale that would effectively eliminate tipping. The interesting thing is, is that the people that this is supposed to benefit, the working stiffs who are waiters and busboys and the like in restaurants, actually turn out to mostly oppose uh, those kind of changes. They like uh, tipping. And this leads to the one of the first reasons why tipping is actually pretty beneficial that deals with something that in economics we call the principal agent problem. So if you'd like me to describe that, I'd be happy to. Yeah, well, I mean, just I have only one more comment about the attitude toward it because I, I know that I've traveled to Iceland before and I'm looking up, you know, do you tip in restaurants? And, you know, you see people comment on these questions in whatever forums and it's like, oh no, you don't have to because in Iceland they pay a living wage. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the attitude or or it's some people will express the sentiment like, why should I have to tip the waitress like to just to help her make ends meet? Why can't the owner, you know, do that? And it's like, okay, it's not quite that simple. So, Anyway, I can I can also understand why people's sentiments are in that direction as well. So what is the principal agent problem? So uh, the principal agent problem is a very basic concept in political economy where you have two individuals, a principal a, a, would be an employer or a boss, and an agent, which would be an employee. And the principal, the boss, wants to get the agent, the employee, to do uh, something for them, and they don't want them to shirk. And so... The problem becomes is that even though the principal and agent might share some common interest, they want a business to succeed, the agent doesn't share the same interest of the owner per se. They want to shirk a little bit. They don't. They want to um, 
uh, not treat certain customers as nice as they uh, may want to otherwise. And so you have this problem here. How does the owner of the business incentivize the employee to do the best job when they can't be monitored? You know, one of the answers is, well, the manager can always be out on the floor of the restaurant watching to make sure that the waiter and waitresses treat everybody with proper respect and you know, hurry the order along, every, et cetera, et cetera. But if the manager is on the floor doing that all the time, well, then you don't need waiters or waitresses. They might as well do the, the job. The, the manager actually has to be doing other things, such as you know, ordering. Being the manager. <laughs> yeah, being the manager, right? Um, so how do you incentivize a person when you can't monitor them? That is essentially the principal agent problem. And in a restaurant, you can see that, well, you know, um, the owner says, I want you to go treat these customers very well you know, so that they come back and they spread good word of mouth and things like this. You want you want the waiter, the waitress to, to put on a, a happy face and, and be very effective in reading the various signals that the customers send off. Uh, the problem is, is that, you know, being a waiter or waitress is a difficult job. Sometimes you have to put up with some really annoying customers. There's that table with the five kids that are screaming or, you know, the impatient customer that has a very particular order all the time. And, you know, you've worked in that industry. You knew who some of these individuals were. I worked uh, delivering pizza for quite a while, and I knew who, you know, the difficult customers were. And I didn't want to give them that good a service. But this is where tipping comes in, is that if the, the wait staff understands that their performance is going to be judged and rewarded at the end of the meal or after you deliver the pizza, you actually have an incentive to put on that happy face, to do a really good job and to read the signals of the various customers uh, better than you normally would. And one of the things I, I should note here when I talk to my students about this, they say, oh, you know, working in a restaurant, that's a low skill job. And I say, balderdash. That's that's not true because a really good uh, waitstaff person will understand how to read uh, people's signals. There's there's the people who are coming into the restaurant and they have to make it to a, a, the opening of a Broadway play and they need to really rush everything along. And they might not say that, but you can tell that they're impatient. Um, there's some individuals that want to be left alone. They're on a date and they don't want to be bothered by the, the waitstaff all the time. People want their water glasses refilled or be chatted up or to be left alone. All those things are actually very important. Mm -hmm. And so a good waiter or waitress will understand understand this and, and really play to that. And if they do a good job for that, uh, they know that they will get a good tip at the end of the evening. If they don't do a good job, then they're not going to have a good tip. So what the what tipping does is creates an incentive that to do a good job even when the manager is not watching. And so long as everybody understands that, that there's a, a cultural milieu that this is how we tip. If, there, if there's good service, you give 20% uh, additional on the tip. If it's not good, you, you don't. You give only 10% or maybe don't even tip at all. This actually helps the wait staff to do a very good job. And that's beneficial to the manager. It's also very beneficial to the customers because they know that you know, even if the, the waiter or waitress is having a bad day, they might be a little bit hungover or grouchy that day. They understand that 
they have some power in influencing the the wait staff to do a good job and to make any corrections if the order comes out cold or incorrect they can hold withhold a tip so they understand too that they're going to be judging the uh, wait staff and that they're incentivizing good uh, business as well yeah uh, go ahead no, no, it's fine. I, I was just sort of saying, yeah, as an, as an agreement, but I do have some thoughts. I want to jump in a little bit. Yeah. I'm picturing this. And of course, you know, my mental image is the places that I was a wait staff, of course, you know, and I'm picturing these. There were experiences that I had where, well, let me ask you a more data related question. And then I'll kind of encompass that with, with what I want to say here. Do you know whether or not people generally tip nothing? I have never tipped nothing um, out of some sort of fear that I'll be stricken by God or something. It just doesn't seem civil to not tip anything. I've never had such service where it's like detrimental, where I've really wanted to tip nothing. But I've wanted to, you know, tip less than 15%. Like that whole 15% is sort of the expected tip amount. Is that, does that, do you know if that affects whether or not people will actually tip less or more? I mean, right now, COVID makes things a little weird, which I want to talk about a little bit later. But what's the data on people tipping for bad service. Yeah, so it's very difficult to measure a lot of this stuff. There has been some work out of Cornell Business School that looks at how people tip. And it does seem that people are very reluctant to not leave a tip, right? They don't want to not tip. They feel that reflects poorly on them. And the range of tipping is actually pretty narrow. It's 15%. It's actually starting to creep up a little bit toward 20%. So most people tend to tip in that range Uh, If there is bad service, it tends to go down a little bit. If there is good service, though, people will up tip. Yeah. If I get really good service, I will go up toward 25 or 30 percent. Uh, Especially if it's a a business that I go to frequently. I uh, am a frequent inhabitant of the Duval Tavern out here in Duval, Washington. And um, I, you know, pat myself on the back here a little bit. I'm a pretty good tipper. And the staff kind of knows that. And, you know, they take care of us whenever we come there. Um, So, you know, I'm paying in advance for, you know, special service. And, you know, they kind of give that to me as well, too. There's kind of an understanding. And the manager loves it, too, because we take good care of their employees. They, They love serving us. I love being served by them. So, you know, for the manager, it's a win win thing for our yeah. uh, win for me it's a win thing as well too now is the, good service scarce is it a scarce good like can they there's there's a limit to their ability to be really good uh, servers to you when there's customers around you though yeah so <laughs> that that's actually a good critique i've never heard anybody make that but that is a good point is that if they spend, i mean if you tipped 100 percent every time let's yeah. just you know kind of be you know exact exaggerate this a little bit like you know, there's only so much benefit that they're going, they're like, well, I can't, you know, only take care of your table. I mean, I guess, in, you know, financially they could, but that would be another principal problem at that point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that, that could be one of these issues is that I, you know, suck up all the oxygen from the room when I come in, oh, the big tipper's in, and so we're going to fawn over this person. I mean, that happens normally. You see celebrities come into restaurants and stuff, and everybody wants to, you know, pay attention to celebrity and not the average Joe that's, you know, sitting off in the corner. Um, so that's always a problem, but it doesn't take a whole lot to actually you know, provide that little bit extra service. And and a lot of it's in many ways incidental. They'll say, oh, you know, you got our order wrong. You know, you forgot the cheddar cheese on the burger or something like that. And oh yeah, well, we'll take care of that really quick. Or I, they'll I just, catch it before it comes to you and let you know that, you know, yeah. like oh, yeah. they, they, they sort of, yeah. 
Exactly. I actually have to, uh, a little anecdote here to tell you. Um, this is my favorite story, how tipping well actually may have saved my life. At, when we used to be able to go and to sit at the bar at the Duval Tavern uh, before all this COVID stuff, I would always go for Seahawks games and I had my little special place at the bar. And even though they don't accept reservations there, oh, they will give people reservations. They'll put a little, you know, cup out and, you know, a little coaster on top of it to reserve your spot you know, right before the game. Cause I have my special spot at the bar that I, I really like. And there was one Sunday I was off at a conference doing some academic thing and I get this phone call. Uh, it's from the Duval Tavern. I said, whoa, what's what's this? What's going on? And I pick it up and they were saying, Tony, are, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm out here in Boston or someplace like that. And they said, oh, well, we were really worried about you because we reserved your spot for the, the Seahawks game. And, you know, we thought you got in a traffic accident and, you know, we were really worried. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, if I did get a traffic accident, here's, you know, because I've tipped well in the past and I'm a good customer, they were going to send out a search and rescue party for me. That's great. <laughs> wow. Um, but it, it's that, you know, it's little extra things that, um, you know, it, and it doesn't take necessarily a, a whole lot of effort to actually do that either. And, it, you know, the range of this is fairly narrow. Getting back to your your question, though, about, you know, do people not tip? That does happen very rarely, but I think it, there's always this, you know, fear at the back of somebody's head, especially working is that, oh, you know, if I don't exert a little bit of effort, they are going to not tip as well. Or, but if I do a little bit extra, they, they might, you know, drop a few extra dollars on there. And, and, and that can add up if you have, you know, a couple dozen customers over the course of a shift, um, that stuff adds up over time. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the higher quality service. I do, I do remember uh, when I was a waiter, there were times when my effort didn't seem to make a difference. You know, mm -hmm. people just kind of like, you know, or 15% people, you know, and, and there was very little 16, 17, 18% tips going on in, you know, no matter how good of a day I was having as a waiter. So I, I sometimes wonder whether or not there is sort of a, a baseline, you know, people just be like, oh, yeah, 15%, yep, 15%, yep. you know, I'm just going to do 15%. Maybe it's out of budget reasons. I'm not impugning yep. anybody's character in terms of tipping. But uh, yeah, I've, I've always wondered whether or not it really does, you know, good, uh, sorry, on the flip side, w whether good service really does make people want to tip more. Yeah. It sounds like it does, but yeah. I, I think it does. In my own experience, too, it, I, I know I've exerted a little bit more effort for people who I know were, were good tippers. I think I'm past the uh, statute of limitations, you know, when I delivered pizza in the early 80s uh, to tell that, yeah, the, the people who didn't tip didn't get the best of service, the people who did tip very well, yeah, they got they got extra mushrooms if they like mushrooms and all that kind of stuff. So it, it really happens at the margin. And you know, people have to uh, somewhat understand this because you know when I talk with students, they think it's an either or thing that either they're gonna you're gonna drop fifty percent on them or you're gonna drop nothing. Um, but within that small band of you know fifteen percent or twenty percent, give or take two or three percentage points, uh, it can make a huge difference, especially again, if you're serving dozens and dozens of customers over a longer period of time, you can actually earn uh, a pretty good scratch with this. And, and this actually segues into the, the third part of the win-win-win situation. This is actually beneficial to uh, the wait staff themselves, that um, I, you know, I know a lot of people who you know, are not at 
fancy five-star Michelin or four-star Michelin restaurants, the white linen tablecloth thing, but, you know, work in taverns or pubs or things like that, just average restaurants who actually make quite a good living when they get tips. Uh, yeah, they have the sub-minimum wage that's based on tipping labor, but they can oftentimes you know, start pulling in $20, $30 an hour, which is, which is really good. And for some of these individuals too, it might be a, it might be their primary job, but it might just be a you know part-time job that they're doing. And I know some uh, a lot of wait staff that they only work four days a week. They work the busiest nights, if you know Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Thursday through Sunday, uh, and then have three-day weekends and love that. Right, that's a benefit to the job as well. Mm-hmm. One of the more interesting things, there was uh, something called uh, Initiative 7 in Washington, D.C. about four, maybe five years ago now. I was out at the Competitive Enterprise Institute giving this presentation, and somebody just, you know, after the thing, it says, oh, you, you don't know this, but we just passed this new uh, initiative by, I think it was like 60 to 40 it was a pretty big margin at which it passed, which would have eliminated this the sub-minimum um, wage for individuals who make gratuities. It, it wasn't an anti-tipping initiative per se. It didn't outlaw the practice. But for all intents and purposes, if that wage was going to go up, you could see that restaurant owners were going to say, uh, you know, we if we still expected a, a 15 or 20 percent tip from the customer, we'd really have to be raising our our prices. And that's not effective. So there was a lot of resistance to this. And after it passed, there was a town hall or city hall city council meeting where a lot of people from the restaurant industry, not only owners, but actual restaurant workers showed up in opposition to this. Right. So the bill was intended to, you know, support the uh, the workers, the frontline workers, the wait staff at a lot of these restaurants. And they said, no, we, we don't want this because, yeah, great. You raise our our base pay, our hourly base pay, maybe to 10 or 12 dollars an hour, but effectively take away tips. I was making 20 dollars an hour with the tips. Um, so they, they yeah. saw it as a, a loss and there was enough pressure that they actually backed off of this. Um, so wait, you're telling me that there was government legislation that was intended to help something but actually harmed them? Yeah, go figure. <laughs> uh, okay. uh, and, and again, I just want to make that clear that, that you know. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it was is brought by a, a small group of you know uh, individuals who have the best intentions of other people in mind without really kind of understanding uh, what those best intentions were. Mm. Um, and it, it, you know, too, I can understand this too. When I was in the you know, early eighties delivering pizza, uh, you know, I, I think my starting wage, I saved my first paycheck. It was like three twenty-five an hour, but then I would make tips and there were nights, especially Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I would be making upwards of $20 an hour, which in the early 1980s yeah. for a 17, 18, 19 year old was, you know, giant scratch. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh yeah. You know, there was a record store next to the pizza place. And I usually just blew all my money that night too by going buying the albums. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it was it was quite glorious to to do that. The other thing about this, and th- this this is a little hard lesson to sell, is that tipping does tend to signal who is really good in this industry and who is not. And 
you know, so at the end of the night, everybody's kind of counting up tips and, you know, what they picked up and stuff. Some some places actually pool their tips. Other be, uh, places allow you to, you know, keep what you, you made off the table. And, you know, some individuals who aren't making as much in tips, that sends a signal to them that says, hey, maybe you don't have the people skills for this industry. Uh, find a different job. And this is very beneficial because it allows people to self-select out of the industry the people who are not suited for this kind of work. And it makes it easier for the managers because they don't have to fire somebody. It's, it, it's always difficult for an employer to call somebody into the office and say, hey, you shouldn't be working here anymore. I, mm-hmm. I know people think, oh, no, it's easy. They're just firing people all the time. But you know, when, when you name the puppy and you get to know that person, it's very difficult to, to let them go. But uh, you know, tipping, when you are receiving the direct rewards for your effort and you see, well, I'm not getting rewarded as much, maybe tells you you're not a yeah. service-oriented person. Maybe computer science is your thing. So that is uh, that is an interesting element to it. Of course, that that possibly creates the problem that now the boss has to go find a new employee, which I guess they would have to do if they're firing them anyway. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. And what it does, I I would argue, and there hasn't been any empirical test of it. It's actually a uh, empirically intractable problem to to figure out. But I mean, overall, it leads to a higher quality of person in the industry. You know, occasionally somebody will hire in and they just won't be that good, but you know, they'll revolve out the door. And and actually in that those kind of service industry, there is a, a big revolving door of of individuals. But yeah. those who are really good and do make a good living at, stick with it. And those are the people that you want in the industry. And it reflects uh, very well on the industry in general. It's like, oh, yeah, great service in, in this town, in this area where everybody's good tippers and things like that. And it makes it more enjoyable. That's why I say it's a win-win-win for everybody, the, the owner, the customer, and uh, the people working in that industry. So, you know, one might think that reading a journal article or essay that you wrote on tipping would be like all about data and, and some about what we talked about. But I have to, I, w- I want to do a plug for the paper that you sent me because there's, there's this line in it that just is just so tremendous and great. And then you can kind of expand on it and comment. So it's like my favorite quote in the article you sent me. The negotiation of the terms of trade between the server and the customer becomes a fascinating one for economists. A Kersnerian dance through the opaque wilderness of uncertainty with the soundtrack provided by Adam Smith's impartial observer. Dude, that's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like having fun with words. So, um, yeah, the, the gist of that is that, uh, you know, in, in a real market economy, you're always negotiating and bargaining. And, you know, you have a buyer and a seller. I, I don't even like those terms anymore. I just like to think about two people exchanging things. You know, I'm going to give you some green rectangles with presidential pictures on it. If you do something for me, bring me hamburgers and French fries and and do it very well with some flair. And that's really what's going on. These, we talk about microeconomics and there's a lot of data and graphs and all this stuff that make people eyes glaze over. But really, you know, when you go out to a restaurant or you go to any kind of interaction, there's always that kind of dance that goes on, right? And, and, you know, having worked in the restaurant industry, you, you figure this out, 
you know, pretty quickly that you know, the good servers understand, you know, what kind of service people want. And the customers give out clues to, you know, I really want to be taken care of this way. Please leave me alone. Don't talk to me. Or I need to rush because the movie is starting in a half an hour, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's almost like being in, you know, you think about a bazaar or an open market or a flea market where people are are bartering all the time. And, and that's really what's going on. And again, it happens at a very thin margin. Uh, 15%, give or take a little bit uh, that goes on there. But for me, it's it's a really beautiful thing. And I wish more people would see that in economics rather than just focusing on the, the graphs that give you the specific equilibrium and stuff. There's a lot more dynamism to this, this which is the reference to, to Kersner, uh, the Kersnerian dance. Yeah. Uh, Kersner was uh, known for his work on entrepreneurship which is you know, somebody not knowing what other people want, but are always trying to probe the environment out there to figure out, oh, what, what, how can we make things better for somebody else? Because if I make something better for somebody, they're going to return the favor uh, by rewarding me as well. And that, that's beautiful. Yeah, for sure. What do you know about the tipping, I don't know what the, the culture of tipping in other countries? Yeah, so this is this gets to the last part of my paper in that tipping is a cultural institution. It's a norm. There's no law in the United States that says thou must tip uh, or you go to prison. It's it's really this cultural institution that has a murky past. And uh, there was a, a book by uh, a man named Seagrave. Uh, I'm forgetting his name uh, first name right now, but. Um, he wrote a, a history of tipping, and, and the first chapter or two of the book is really interesting because he goes you know, into a deep dive where this started, and it's, it's really not clear where it did. It, it seems like it started in the 16th century in Britain, maybe, with some manor assistants, you know, people who would you know, greet visitors to the manor estate, the feudal estate, or whatever, wherever they called it, and they would you know, take care of the people's rooms and things like this. And at the end of the, the trip, the people would hand them a few shillings or something and say, hey, great job for doing that. And it eventually caught on. Now, how it caught on, we really don't know. Just like most other cultural things. Why do we have handshakes? You know, why do we say, hi, how's the weather? It, it, these things just kind of emerge organically. Yeah. Given that Seagrave kind of was able to locate the origins of tipping to, to Britain around this period of time, it's not surprising that the cultural institution has followed the, the pattern of British imperialism. So if you look on, on a map of the world, places that tip, you can kind of sketch out more or less where Britain was. It also happens in the uh, uh, European continent, too. It, it, a lot of people go to Europe now or go to France and say, well, there's no tipping. There used to be. And that's really interesting. Why it stopped mm. is, is somewhat of a mystery, and I haven't really probed that yet. It's a project uh, that's on the back burner for me. So, you know, places like the United States, it's very common. You know, Australia, Britain, a few, India. But there are other places that were not touched by this, like uh, the Eastern Asian countries of like Japan or China. It's relatively unknown. Does that mean that these, you know, civilizations are not as good because they don't have tipping? No, not at all. The argument that I make at the end of the paper is that these cultural institutions uh, like tipping that we have are designed for people to find ways to interact with one another better, to find ways to cooperate. I, I, I don't know if I cite it in this paper, but I'm working on another paper on gifting, why we give presents to one another. 
where, you know, the, the golden rule, Matthew seven twelve, is, you know, do unto others as they do unto you. A lot of these things are kind of institutionalized in these cultural traditions. And one of the bigger mysteries of tipping is why would anybody ever leave a tip at a restaurant they would never go back to? In fact, that was the question that motivated this in, entire thought for me. And I, I would do this with students for the last 27 years as a, 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 a way to get them to think about incentives and things like this. And we know that, you know, if you're driving cross country and you stop at a diner in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and, you know, you're never going to go back there again. You don't have to worry about return service or anything like that. They give you the bill for, you know, breakfast. It's $15. And so I'll just, I'm obligated to pay the $15 and nothing more. I don't have to leave a tip. Who cares? Well, we know that people leave tips. And that's, you know, according to basic economic logic, not rational. But we developed this norm that says, no, if, you know, somebody treats you well, you should treat them well back. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this is a way of, of inculcating this. Now, this is one of the more specific institutions that we do it. Uh, other cultures don't have tipping, but they have other ways of doing it. In Japan, they give little gifts all the time uh, to individuals, which is, which is similar to tipping. In, in many yeah, ways. I have a I have a friend who experienced that for a decade as as a missionary, and he uh, he he had they had to adapt to it. It was very mm -hmm. uh, and and of course when he reports it back to us, it was you know he tells it to us in humorous ways because there's there's you know things you notice over the course of a decade that like oh these are the patterns of the people who do these little gifts like you know so it's kind of kind of amusing to hear about. So yeah, that's that's an interesting parallel. Yeah, and, and for me, this is where a lot of my thinking and research has been going is that, and it also within a libertarian uh, anarchic kind of framework is that, you know, human beings are really good at solving problems of how can we cooperate and coordinate our behavior with one another without having to rely upon rules or laws. Uh, we find these, you know, little cultural institutions like tipping or giving presents or, you know, feasting days or all these different things that bring people together. People sacrifice resources for one another. Sacrifice is a big thing in this. When you actually tip, you don't have to tip. You're making a sacrifice, right? There might be some cultural pressure and you might feel guilty yeah, about right. it, but, you know, yeah. you're, you're really giving to somebody. Say, hey, thank you for doing what you do. I want to reward you for that, even though I don't have to. And yeah. all cultures have different ways of doing that. And for me, I find this kind of a very optimistic view on human behavior because people figure this out without the government requiring people to cooperate. And when left alone to their own devices, people are pretty good. People do tip at restaurants they know they're never going to come back to because, you know, they develop empathy for one another. And we have these little rules of thumbs and social norms that say, yeah, you know, even if it's a stranger you'll never see again, treat them nice because. Yeah. You know, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. So how has the pandemic affected people's tipping? Maybe there's no data on it. I'm sure you can speak anecdotally because right now the opportunity to sit down at a restaurant is a lot lower or there's a, there's, you know, it's a different situation. Everybody knows that, you know, we're at 50% capacity or whatever the capacity happens to be, you know, over the past year. I've been motivated to give a lot more as a tip, uh, just simply because I know that these people are going through hard times. It's affected their industry in ways that don't necessarily affect every other industry. And so I don't know, if there, is there any data or any observations you have on how the pandemic has affected restaurant tipping? Alas, I do not have that. And I, 
I would actually love it because I think this whole pandemic is a, a natural experiment in a lot of different ways, not only for tipping, but, you know, for social interactions oh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I have so many things on my plate right now that I, you know, and then this caught me by surprise, too. You know, back one year ago when they said, oh, you know, we're just going to you know, shut down everything for two weeks just to flatten the curve and keep people out of hospitals. I said, oh, OK, well, two weeks, that's, you know, people just hunkered out. It's like a snowstorm. You know, the extended snow days. But then it kept getting longer and longer. He said, well, this this can't last any longer. So, you know, I think some of the opportunity has passed us by for this. But anecdotally, the, the whole what I was talking about, the, you know, the golden rule of do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And you just mentioned this, too, is that, you know, the, the people who were most impacted by this were service industry that had face to face contact with individuals. And so restaurants adjusted by doing a lot of to go service. And I'm personally do a lot more tipping to go now. You know, usually if I pick up a to go service, I, you know, may, maybe give a dollar or two or something like that. It wasn't that big a deal because there wasn't a big, as big of a principal agent problem. Right. Um, Preparing I, your meal was very, very minimal before. Yeah. Which is now there's a whole apparatus around getting a customer their meal in the right way. Yeah. To go. Which is one of the reasons why we don't tip at McDonald's, right? It's very mechanized. Right. You go up to the counter and say, you know, I want, you know, two cheeseburgers, right. a side order of fries. And, you know, it comes down to shoot, essentially. And so there there really is no principal agent problem there. It's the places where there's a little bit more involvement. I, I also talk about this at, at coffee shops. Right. I I'd get black coffee. And so when I go into Starbucks, I say, you know, <laughs> give me a black coffee. And, you know, they usually hand you a cup or sometimes they pour it for you. And there's nothing to that. Right. Uh, so I don't tip. But if it's a, you know, caramel macchiata with half twist lemon sauce with, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, then I'm going to tip a little bit better. Right? <laughs> that sounds gross, man. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, now... You, you apparently do order black coffee. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I've had these you know, situations too. And you know, the, my, I guess my bane is being a, a social scientist is that uh, I remember one time distinctly when I just said, you know, can I have a grande drip coffee? And they poured it and they have that little square box sitting there, you know, with, with some money for tips. And I saw the person kind of look down at the tip box and look at me as they hand me the change back. And I was like, no, I'm, you, you didn't do it. You turned, you turned around and got me a cup of coffee. It's like the self right. frozen. And you know, they're not making waiter to uh, wages either. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, that's that too. So, you know, I don't, I didn't feel particularly guilty, even though yeah. the little eye uh, glance. Uh, oh, that's interesting. I've, I've never really had that. You know, the, the experience for me has been a little weird because as I admitted earlier that I'll choose to do carry out, so that I didn't have to tip, right? So I'll yeah. like order something, I'll go pick it up, and then I'll just leave. No big deal. Well, now it's a little more awkward because I know that there was more prep time. And I also know that, you know, that particular restaurant may or may not be, you know, they can't get tips. And so the people who would otherwise be wait waiters and waitresses are doing the work of getting my to-go stuff ready and, you know, yeah. making the packaging friendly for travel and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I've, I've begun to do that. But this kind of leads me into probably the last things we'll talk about here, which is leading out of the like restaurant, sit down, dine in restaurant experience of tipping. You know, I think we're all relatively accustomed. We've talked about that a lot. Now we're going into the to go thing. I've also been at like, I don't travel a whole lot the way you might, but you know, I'd be at a hotel and I'd go downstairs to get like, let's say a drink and something at the bar, because that's the only place that serves food in this particular, you know, establishment. 
And it's like, you know, they hand you a receipt and there's a line for your total, then tip, and then subtotal. And I'm like, I feel really guilty doing a tip, but like, kind of like what you said with the black coffee, I'm like, all you did was bring it from the kitchen to the front here. Like, you know, there's not... And so I've just... It's been an awkward experience for me and I think it just depended on certain things or or the bartender who's sitting there in a mostly empty bar uh, and, you know, you know, you, you come up to the bar, they pour you a drink. Okay, all you did was pour me a drink. The same as what somebody would do with a black coffee, right. as you just described. And I'm like, oh, really? Like, you know, like, and there was a note in your in your paper about there being like tipping a dollar just per beer. Yeah. It was kind of like a, a norm. I don't know if that's still the norm or if you're referring to something in the past, but I was like, oh, oh, I could go for that. Like that I get. Yeah, I mean, there is that kind of social norm. And if it's an empty bar and they're not really doing much, um, you know, do you actually tip at that time? Well, you, you do it because you're trying to preserve the institution so that when you, you know, it is busy, you know, that person still has an incentive to be attentive uh, to you in that. The situation that you're talking about is what we call tipping creep. And it's it's a more specific instance of, you know, how really good institutions over time can be hijacked or corrupted by, you know, other intentions and things. The, the thing that drives me absolutely bonkers is the tip jars at uh, the counter of self-serve frozen yogurt shops. And <laughs> I, I mean, I that just, it makes me nuts. It's like, I should be tipping myself. I did a really good job with the toppings this time. You know, I special attention to layering the- All they did was pie. weigh it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, and usually I have to put it on the thing and weigh it, you know, so- um, Right, especially and, now. And, and if you notice too, those things, they don't have a lot of money in there. It's usually just spare change, right? So it comes, your your order comes out to $3.82. And so you drop the 18 cents because it's a, a pain to carry a, a dime, a nickel and three pennies. And so, you know, that, that starts to spoil things, right? And, you know, in the paper, I, I try to emphasize this principal agent problem issue that, you know, where you really need that customized service is really where this institution tends to work out very well, right? And so, you know, if you go through the list of places where you tip and you don't tip, there are places where I have more customized service. Like you don't tip or you do tip your hairstylist, especially if you have me, they just cut my hair really quick, but that, you know, I don't want them to cut my ears off. So congratulations for not doing that. Here's a five. But, you know, for people who have big poofy hair or something like that and have a lot done, yeah, it's important that you tip. There's a craft to it. Yeah. But you don't tip your, you know, delivery driver who you know, brings you the UPS packages. You do tip your pizza delivery person, though, because you want to make sure that thing gets their piping hot. And, you know, again... Whenever I go to a new pizza restaurant, I always drop a huge tip having been in that industry because they know, right? You know, oh, you know, the Gill household, they they drop, you know, a big tip on you. Make sure that they when they get extra cheese, they get extra cheese, right? So, you know, it, it makes sense to have in those areas. The, the more we extend the institution into places where it doesn't make sense, the worse the institution becomes. And, and not surprisingly, the more aggravated people become with it. And again, there's a lot of this frustration of, oh, when do I tip and where do I tip? Do I, do I tip the, you know, the people who pick up our garbage? Do I tip the landscape or do I tip, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that becomes very frustrating, right? Um, yeah. The norms become very cloudy. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people who are very anxiety ridden about this cultural institution, that's, uh, you know, what they're picking up. And unfortunately, that, that happens. I don't, you know, if I had a magic wand where I could make this you know, institution better, I would say, okay, self-serve frozen yogurt, you cannot put out the tip box. 
Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> UPS driver, nope, nothing there. Uh, newspaper delivery person, nope. Well, maybe something around Christmas time or something. But, you know, hairstylist, yes. Somebody who makes your caramel macchiata, yes, but not the black coffee. It's vague. And it's difficult to negotiate. So I'm not yeah. surprised people are frustrated with, with uh, the whole yeah. process. One simple question about the, uh, the restaurant tipping. I noticed as a kid that, and maybe, maybe, this is, maybe this happened earlier. I grew up or came of age in the 90s. And so maybe this happened earlier, but I didn't notice because I didn't notice. Uh, is that when it would say like on the, on the receipt or on the menu, it would say, you know, tables of eight or more uh, will have an automatic included gratuity. Do you know what's behind that? Yes. If you have eight or more or 10 or more, usually it's a group of people that are not related to one another. Oftentimes, especially at pizza restaurants, right? We worked at a pizza restaurant very close yeah, to a high right. school. And so Friday night after the football game, we get slammed by teenagers, right? And they would tend to under tip. Right. And part of it because, well, they're teenagers. But the other part of it is that there's this this collective action problem is that, you know, you have, you know, 10 different people sitting at the table and you all ordered something different. So you're not sure, well, what do I tip? It's a little confusing. So there might be this incentive to under tip. And that creates a problem because I, I knew this at the restaurant that I worked with. Whenever the teenagers came in after the football game, um, the wait staff, nobody wanted to serve them, right? But the owner says, no, you got to serve them. These are customers and we want them coming back because they'll become adults someday and we always want them coming back. Um, so, you know, how are you going to make sure that the staff is incentivized to do a nice job for these teenagers or to actually go to the table and take their order is you, you put that uh, automatic tip on there. It's basically a way yeah. of, of solving that collective action problem. Okay. Uh, and again, solving okay. the principal agent problem. One, one thing that I've appreciated in probably the last decade is that a lot of times the receipts, you know, you, you didn't have this in the 80s, I don't think. And I don't remember this kind of thing in the 90s at all, but the um, where the receipt now sort of has your bill totaled and it's like, all right, well, if you tip 15, 18, 20, and 25%, here's what those amounts would be so that you didn't have to get out your calculator or your phone or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if it's people are not as good with math anymore. Um, you know, I have this general rule is it's pretty easy to basically double the sales tax. You know, most places like 7, 8 to 10% or something yeah, yeah. like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's ironic that nowadays when we all have calculators in our <laughs> yeah. pockets, they started doing that. But like in the 80s and 90s, there was no, no such, you know. No. I, I want to go back because you said something when you know, said when you were a kid, you would watch this. And one of the important things that's oftentimes overlooked by this institution is it becomes a way to teach other people to be gracious. So when you were, you know, seven, eight years old and, you, you know, the meal was paid for, you see your mother or father put, you know, an extra you know, cash on the table. You're like, well, why is that? He said, well, you know, we're, we're tipping because they did a nice job for us and, and we want to do good by them. And those are moments that we as a society really need. We need to be able to teach people to be gracious, to be not only, you know, good human beings in general, but, you know, when in a market situation, markets don't run on, you know, greed and self-interest despite what, you know, you might hear in a, a yeah. basic micro econ, econ class, it works because people want to serve one another. And it's, you know, not only the, the seller serving you, but you as a customer are serving them. They're providing something for you. And so, like, I, you know, that line you mentioned before, there's this beautiful dance there where we learn 
to interact with one another, to be gracious, to to do unto others as we have them uh, that you would have them do unto you. And this is you know now part of a, a broader project I'm doing on on presents, uh, Christmas presents, birthday presents, Valentine's Day, all these other things. You know, I'm starting to realize how important these moments are for teaching our children, uh, for teaching one another, and just for interacting with one another to to say, hey, you don't have to do anything for me, but thank you very much for for being there. And if everybody does that, market institutions actually work a lot better because nobody wants to cheat one another. Nobody wants to defraud or or steal from one another. And, And so that's something that you know, the economics field has really, really overlooked. In fact, there's a book that you know, argues that gifting is a, a dramatically inefficient institution because it leads to deadweight loss when people get presents that they don't want. The thing, though, is, is that, you know, doing these sacrifices when you don't have to, showing graciousness is immensely important for interacting with individuals who we don't know and don't know if we necessarily trust. And the more that we show graciousness in our culture at large, the better our economy will be. Well, I don't think there's a better way to end than what you just said here. So you, you've wrapped us a gift here at the end. I'm just going to have to, I have to, I can't, I can't not do that. You've wrapped a bow on our little gift of a, a podcast here. So, well, I, I already know that I, I want to have you on for two things. One is this gifting thing in the future and also the religion stuff that you're, you're into. So uh, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, they can find me at the University of Washington Department of Political Science. I don't have a website as yet. I'm one of these old people that hasn't gotten hip with this internet thing. I don't know if it's going to catch on or not. Um, but if you go to the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington and look under the faculty, I have contact information there and you can see wonderful, handsome pictures of me and all the other kind of stuff that I've written and teach and do. Awesome. Well, Tony, thanks for joining us for the episode today. Thank you very much, Doug. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 